You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. What are you doing? You have a gift. You can help people. Fine. Go back to peddling soy milk and nailing waitresses. What do I care? I'm dead. You're listening to Fisher Family Ghosts, a companion podcast to the HBO series Six Feet Under. I'm Sam Dingman. I'm Adrian Bain. You didn't get that on tape, right? What'd you just say? Nothing. <laughs> it sounded like you were expressing genuine affection for me. I <laughs> don't. Then again, that doesn't sound like you. Don't. So I, I must have been hallucinating. Yeah, I think you had a... You're listening to your delusions a little too much. Girl, I'm in show business. Mm. If I can't listen to my delusions, I'm not going to make it that far. Mm, that's true. One could argue I haven't made it that far. Maybe I need to listen to my delusions a little more closely. Oh. Honey. Starting off on a high note... That's so sad. I think you've made you've made it so far. You are very marketable. Look at this basement full of microphones. Mm-hmm. You've made it. Wait, Nigella Lawson. Do you know who that is? Does she cook things? Mm-hmm. She is a gorgeous British lady who cooks. And there's this Instagram meme that meme that's been going around of people being like, "Oh, I've been pronouncing." Microwave's wrong. She pronounces it mi- microwave. <laughs> it's like, what? She's like, now let's just put it in the microwave for five seconds. <laughs> and it's like, Nigella, you are a beautiful, intelligent person who has a journalism degree. I know you know better. Microwave can never sound sexy or sophisticated. Okay, question. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about it when you say to a group of friends... Do you want to go do karaoke? And they say, it's actually pronounced karaoke. Oh, my God. What is your response to that? Even if they are technically correct. Okay. As a traveler, I've gone to places where they pronounce things in the way that you're supposed to say it. So there's like croissant or euro instead of what I just had from a diner, which I would call a New York gyro. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you're in the place... If I'm in Japan and I say karaoke, I don't know what the do it. That's fine because you are being respectful to that culture. I remember, I think I said croissant once in front of my family and they batted me like a cat getting a moth. They were like, fuck that. Don't you ever do that again. And I think that's, I don't know, that's a very American approach to it i've given you a hard time for saying literature (laughs) and i just did again i guess that is like an attack coming out of nowhere this feels really (laughs) personal and like i'm bombarded right now you're overwhelming me Uh, i'm pulling a david rose right now i'm being like this is too far um excuse me you're in david fisher country right now 
So what a those, beautiful pivot. Get those David Rose right, allegiances talking? out of your head. Well, the listeners may be wondering the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're here, Adrian Bain, mm-hmm. to discuss episode three of season one of the HBO program Six Feet Under. Program. But, programa. <laughs> La programa. Televisione. Yes. I don't know how to say six feet up. Bajo. Yes. Six. Como se dice feet. Yeah, yeah. But see, that's so. It, did you hear that? Obviously. My ride's here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mike Birbiglia, you get on that truck and you go back to Connecticut where you belong. <laughs> Even my imitations are derivative. <laughs> oh, honey. You're an original person sometimes. I'm an original Mike Birbiglia knockoff. Let's get back to the show. Okay. So we're about to talk about episode three mm-hmm. of season one mm-hmm. of Six Feet Under. Great. And Adrian, I'm, I'm curious to know what lingering questions you have from last week, what uh, you're hoping they go deeper on mm-hmm. in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I would like to name once again that one of the things that I'm enjoying about this process, other than gazing at your lovely face, is the fact that since the show is, in fact, 20 years old, I do not remember the plot in the way that there are other shows where I have such a clearer... When I was became more trained in following episodic TV, because... You were lonely. I was... Had yes, friends. Yes. Uh, uh, we're lost in life. I was about to say, when are we talking about? And then I was like, that doesn't really need a peg. Um, oh. And why am I being so hard on myself in this episode? I don't know, honey. I don't know. Maybe you'll know by the end of the episode. Maybe by the end of the episode, I'll really have come to some understandings of uh, where I'm at emotionally, which is hopefully what the listeners are here for. Because they're not really getting great TV criticism. Mm-mm, not really. <laughs> um, as a reminder to the listeners, Six Feet Under was the first TV show that I watched that wasn't a baseball game. So it was the first time that I was following a plot from episode to episode, mm-hmm. season to season, going deeper and deeper on the characters. I am not going to repeat what you just mouthed. <laughs> it is... Nasty. But flattering. <laughs> and so it's making me remember again that while the feeling of Six Feet Under and the set of themes and ideas that it made me think about still feel present for me every day... The actual story is basically a new set of discoveries every week when we sit down to do this. Mm. And I think the main thing that I am interested to see them go deeper on this time around is this ongoing question that we were talking about last week of how aware Nate is of what Brenda is up to. Ugh, Brenda. I know last week it definitely left on a like bold move all right episode three here we go hey it's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's like in a lot of pieces. Uh, Humpty Dumpty, I know. Be careful, that could be his head. Jesus. Ah, or his pelvis. Ah, it's probably his head. So what happened to Rico? He get canned? Ah, uh, it's just busy. You knew over there? No, I'm just a temp. I heard old man Fisher kicked. You know him? Not really. Hey, no offense, pal. You might want to call your agency and ask for a new assignment. I'm already on it. And we're back. I'd like to start with our new recurring segment. Fret bro has a thought. <laughs> Adrian, dig it. Whoa. In a show uh-huh. that is about a family uh-huh. trying to piece together the legacy of their father, in this episode, we find them trying to literally reassemble the pieces of a father who was cut up in a dough mixer in the cold open. <laughs> Whoa. You think there's anything else to explore there or... Should we just move on? I would know. I want to think about that. Well, it's like, because each sibling handles like a different piece. You know, I think it's them kind of juggling, like, what is my role here? What is the point? Because the whole. Oh, that's true. Because the whole episode is about like, should we sell this place? Sorority sisters got a thought over here. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know. That's a thought. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it could the, the the disassembled body could be like everything is falling apart and we're trying to keep it together, right? And at the very end, when actually, we that's, find that's a sharper read. Then <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 glad I said my dumb thing so that we could get to that, which is actually interesting. And then at the very end, it takes the whole when the wife literally tries to climb into the casket and is like, take me with you, which is fucking ridiculous. There are a lot of creative decisions that were kind of ridiculous this episode. You know, Elvis did did that to his mom's body at the funeral. Hold on. Oh, my God. Elvis went. So the thought is that at the very end, when that woman is breathing, she tries to climb into the casket. It takes the whole fam, Like, the whole family had kind of worked together to piece that body together. And they all, like, pull her out. That's true. It's not just one person. It's both brothers being like, no, we need to keep this together. Right. And Rico, who has just told them he considered leaving. Yep. Rico's on their team. Mm. So this makes me actually want to step back for a second and reconsider why they made the choice to have the second episode be about the guy who was running the pyramid scheme. Or multi-level mm-hmm. marketing thing. Okay. I mean, he was lying, cheating, constantly in debt. 
um, misleading his wife, had a newborn baby, was also a father. And he was running a business that he largely kept the inner workings of a secret. A secret. And we find out about the will in that episode. And we find out about the will and how there he had designs on what was happening right. or what he wanted to happen that he hadn't shared with anybody. Right. That's an interesting poll. This might be a little bit under the Sam Dingman finds meaning in all things. Guilty as charged. Category. So I don't want to say that this is a pattern yet, but it is something that I am going to look for in future episodes. I think we should. I think I may have been a little too quick to dismiss the relevance of the cold opens in the conversation we had last week and previously mm-hmm. in watching this. Okay. Here's another connection I want to ask you about. Okay. Mr. Romano is killed at the beginning of the episode in the dough mixer by spinning blades. Gross. Ugh, I hate this part. The scene, the dynamic between Keith and David in this episode has largely to do with buying a ceiling fan. Right. Which also has spinning blades. Right. And not as lethal, but. Not as lethal, but in one scene, they are lying on the bed looking up at it, and David talks about how it could come unattached at any moment and literally. projecting much. (laughs) (laughs) So, what do you make of that connection? Do you think that was just. A clever narrative rhyme, or do you think they were after something more significant there? I guess in this moment, because I can't think of how that would connect to larger things, that it, it does seem like a narrative rhyme. Because when, like, why weren't they shopping for curtains? Right. I do think another thing that's interesting, though, about the way Mr. Romano dies at the beginning is he is a real stickler for details and keeping the equipment clean and doing things by the book. Mm-hmm. And his assistant is a, like a clumsy dum dum who yeah. gets grossed out by stuff just yeah. like Nate. And Oh, oh interesting. So it's it's kind of the same dynamic. And it is it is the clumsy dum dum getting freaked out by the cockroach that causes the accident to happen. Yeah. That just makes me think like did David get unnecessarily punished in this episode. Nate rips up the X hundred thousand dollar check. And maybe if David had been a little bit more careful about like, oh, you're just throwing my life away. Like, then maybe Nate wouldn't have made such a rash decision. Oh, that's interesting. What I'm saying is that like, David kind of backtracks and realizes how much money really was on the table and Nate in kind of like an impulsive moment rips up Mm -hmm. an escape hatch. Yeah, absolutely. You can't rip up an escape hatch. I just mixed my metaphors. (laughs) But. Well, you can set it on fire, which we'll come to presently. First, though, also in the vein of trying to reassemble the pieces of a father in a non-literal sense. In the first scene after the cold open, we hear Nate and Brenda laughing. They have just right. uh, coitus been the beast with two backs. Ew. And Ugh. um the big band music comes on. Don't call it like that. I will 
never have sex with you again if you keep calling it that. Well, would you prefer the horizontal mambo? Please stop. You're on a ticket to never getting laid again. Would you prefer... Keep going. Yep. Mm -hmm. Putting putting a ham in the old sandwich? Oh, my God. Why is that worse? (laughs) Ew, and what is the ham and... Ew. (laughs) Nate hears the big band music come on Brenda's radio. Mm Mm-hmm. And he says, I love this song. It reminds me of these records my my dad used to play. Mm -hmm. It's kind of one of the first concrete memories we have from Nate. And then later when he's literally putting the dismembered Mr. Romano onto the truck at the morgue or the hospital, wherever they're picking up the body from, the attendant says to him, referring to Mr. Romano in the bag, no, no, sorry. He says of... Nathaniel Sr., Nate's father. Yep. Did you know him? Not knowing it's his son. Yeah. And Nate says, not really. Not really. I know. That was a little 90s emo for my taste. <laughs> it was a little like, because to a certain extent, like, I don't know my dad. I think I know my dad. But like, do we really know our parents? Like. Well, I mean, you're putting your finger for me on what feels so magnetizing about this like story for me. Put my finger there, Sam. <laughs> on the emotional center of my favorite television program? Yes. No, where my finger is right now. Yes. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> Don't tell them it's, where it is. It's no. rubbing your temples. No, no. <laughs> Say more about why you find that sort of eye rolly. I think it was easy. But maybe I'm just I feel like that was an easy line to give. But you did like the line, just to stay with this for a second, you did like it when Claire said to Gabriel, um, I wish people wouldn't act like the cliches they are. Because that's a pretty, that's that's a cute burn. And I think that just kind of highlights more of Claire's precociousness. Like that to me is such a younger sibling line. But do you feel like that line applies to Nate and him being in anguish over not knowing his father? Like, do you feel like that storyline is also a cliche? No. No. I realize I'm sort of accusing you of something you didn't say, but I did notice that 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 line resonated with you. So I'm just curious. I I just thought it was a little eye rolly. The Nate part. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Nate part. Mm-hmm. I guess for me, it was, you know, like this is also a moment when Nate is, in his mind, pretty sure that they're going to sell the business. And this will be one of the last corpse runs he has to do. And mm-hmm. when the guy says, like, did you know your father? Not knowing he's asking about his, his father. And he says, not really. I think it's a, a moment of dawning realization that he's never going to if he actually follows through with selling the business. Ooh. And that... I like that. If they if they were to keep it, perhaps, if nothing else, he could... This is kind of a way of... Start to get to know him. Huh. All right. I like that take. And to stay with that for a moment, Nathaniel Sr. then finally says the thing yeah. that nobody else has been saying in the show but have all been experiencing and that you and I have been talking about in in the first two episodes which is Nate's capacity for empathy Mm -hmm. 
when he says to Nate, you have a gift, Mm -hmm. you could be helping people. Mm -hmm. And that does seem to really land for Nate Mm -hmm. that time. To a point where he's like, oh, this is my life's purpose, and I think I've been running away from this my whole life. I've been a tourist Mm -hmm. my entire life. Mm -hmm. This is maybe an unfair question, but in that moment, I did think of things you have talked about on Strangers Abroad, about how a lot of times people travel because they're either looking for something or running away from something and are hoping that in this travel they might discover meaning or discover home when in reality, as you have put it, you bring your baggage with you, (laughs) literally and metaphorically, Mm -hmm. everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite pieces of writing from your show. Thanks, honey. And I wondered if that idea of being a tourist up until a certain moment of revelation was something you had ever experienced. Oh, yeah. My father accused me of having a sampler lifestyle (laughs) of like, I just hop around and I have a little bit of here and I have a little bit of there. And he also probably doesn't like it when I ask him for bites of his food. But (laughs) I think you feel like a tourist in a place when you don't feel a sense of community or connection anywhere. Because one thing that I do find when I'm traveling is that even if I love the place that I'm in and I love the aesthetic and I love the way that it makes me feel and I love the culture, I am always craving my community and I am always craving the thing that makes me feel connected to other people. And that's something you sacrifice when you travel is you cut the umbilical cord from your home for a temporary time. And I definitely resonated with that and the feeling, the want of, I just want to figure out what the fuck I'm supposed to do. And I think that's an oldest child issue. But that's interesting to me that you're describing it in those terms because you talked about how what you really miss, no matter how beautiful the place, is community and connection. Yeah. And... In the show, we have Nate, who lives in a beautiful place, Seattle, works in a food co-op, is notionally living this very blissful life, but he has to come back to this reality of the funeral home to appreciate the depth of connection that he's actually capable of. No, totally. The ability to truly bond with people emotionally. I don't think Nate is satisfied with his life. In Seattle. I think he probably thinks it's cooler than L.A. because at the time, you know, Seattle's just coming out of that big punk phase of the 90s. And <laughs> no, Seattle was like the, a cool place to be. But right. He's working at a grocery store. He's having sex with waitresses. And that's funny, though. Walks be- in. That, that's funny, though, because in this episode, Brenda literally makes fun of him for being like a wannabe music fan. Yeah. So I don't think, I think that Nate is just kind of grasping pleasure and making enough money to kind of coast on that and indulge. You're talking about in his life in Seattle. In his life in Seattle. I don't think that he's like proud that he works at the food co-op. So I think that he is really craving community and I think he is craving a deeper purpose and one that he was running away from. But I feel like a lot, I mean, this happened to me is like 
you realize that, I don't know, there's something about always coming home. I don't know. It just makes the most sense sometimes. And in this, this is the episode where he actually once and for all decides that this isn't just a visit, that he's going to stay. Yeah. And that this is going to be home in a way that it hasn't been since he was a child. Yeah. That business of seeing your home differently for the first time is something that for me, when I reflect back on that moment that I was in when I first started watching this show and was sitting there in my cheap suit, eating my tuna sandwich, drinking my Corona, Mm -hmm. I was in the TV room, as we talked about, where I used to sit and kind of look at my dad um, and wonder about the life that he led when he wasn't at home watching the baseball game with me. And I had this memory this time watching this that one of the things about that experience is that he used to sit on the couch and he would be looking at the TV and I'd be looking at the TV. We'd be watching baseball. And then all of a sudden I would hear this like thump and I would look over and it was because he was so tired that his head had tipped back and he would bonk it on the wall and that would wake him up. But he was so exhausted and I don't think I clocked it as exhaustion, you know, because it was, I don't know, eight o'clock at night when we would be watching the game. It was not terribly late. And, you know, he was a lawyer. He was he didn't work in like a hospital. He got to the office at like eight or nine in the morning. So it's not like he was working incredibly long hours. But there was something about the life that he was leading that it just took it out of him in a way that I think about myself sitting in the same room all those years later coming back from a job that I knew that I didn't care about and realizing in part by dint of watching the show, I could just do this forever. I could just put the suit on every day, go to the place that gives me the money, wear something that looks professional, come back, have a little dinner and watch TV. Like that could, that could be life. And in some way it feels like, I was starting to realize that that's maybe a choice that my dad made. Even if I couldn't put my finger on it in that moment. Wow. I'll invoice you for this therapy session at the end. <laughs> Great. Maybe a 250. I don't take co-pays. Okay, that's fine. So. No insurance either? What if I put that ham in the sandwich? Okay, that God was not necessary. Damn it, Tingman. Also, that would be very unethical for that a therapist. That was disgusting. It was. But like, maybe she's into it. <laughs> Anyways, um, wow, honey. Well, yeah. Sorry, that went on longer than I intended it to. No, that's beautiful. I didn't beautiful, mean to monologue. Though. But I think okay. So out of reeling that back into six feet under, like, do you think that that's probably what Nate is? contemplating right now is like do i want to put the fucking name tag on and just have a job that gives me money or do i want to really have a sense of purpose with it something that might literally make me throw up sometimes yeah but will enable me to to really find that that connection with people you vomit in the podcast studio all the time (laughs) this is where the passion happens Mm -hmm. And projectile vomiting. Anyways. So 
I think I think part of where that thought process about my dad is coming from too is that I have been doing Christmas shopping recently. Ugh, I hate it. I know it's it's we abysmal. About our anxieties in the car. But what I decided to get my dad for Christmas is a fountain pen, which has kind of been my move lately. Oh my god! But part of the reason I want to get him a fountain pen is because. I have this memory of being in his home office when I was a kid and finding this legal pad where he had written a story. And I don't remember what the story was about, but I I remember that it was a story. I remember he had this really sharp, angular cursive. Hmm. And then I remember asking him about it. And I remember him saying, oh, well, I always thought, you know, if I if I could have done it, I really wish that I had been a writer. <gasps> and I remember deciding in that moment that a writer is what I really wanted to be. Aww. Because it felt like, one, it might impress him. And then on some level, too, I think I clocked a little bit. He didn't do it. Maybe I can do it for both of us. Oh and so I have this hope that, you know, he's coming to the end of his career as a lawyer now that maybe he'll be interested in using the time to use this pen to write whatever he has always wanted to write. I kind of have like two thoughts from that. One is I remember talking to my dad. I think I was in my early, early 20s. And I remember him saying that like my father built his own business So I don't think that my father has any sense of regret around the career choices. Like, he is that business. And he's built an incredible community around it. But I remember him saying once that he's never going to learn new skills. You know, like, my father can look at any plant in North America and identify it. But... I remember him saying, I'm never going to write a great sentence. And I thought that was so ridiculous. I was like, what? Don't limit yourself so much. So I feel like both of our fathers have like, and my father has, as you've told me, which I didn't even know, been in the process of like, maybe you should get my dad a fountain pen. No, I'm just kidding. My father (laughs) has no interest in quality things. Um, But he has been in the process of. But he's been in the process of like making this. I don't know, music? You have a better sense of what it is than I do. Well, is this okay to talk about? We can talk about it, and if you don't want me to put it in, we don't have to. Okay. But what Adrian is referring to is that over the summer, I was sitting by the pool with her dad, and he said, kind of out of nowhere, started telling me about this tape he has in their basement that is this series of songs that he wrote and recorded all by himself um, that he's apparently never shared with you guys. And it also makes me think of the fact that he, I mean, it's so interesting to me, the phrase you just used, he, he's like, I could never write a sentence. But he has left little finely crafted sentences on Post-it notes all over your house. Such a continual enigma. Oh, he's such a Gemini and it drives me fucking nuts. Like he had, there are post-it notes on the wall at Adrian's house that say things like recognize and respect race. Yeah. And it's not 
posted in relationship to anything else. Nope. It's just a post that he has on the wall because he wants to keep that in mind. Yep. Or he has a another one that he wrote next to a picture of your old family dog that says, she was the lady of the house and she taught us all how to be ladies. No, how to behave. How to behave, that's it. Um, like what? Joe Bain, who are you? Those are both great sentences. Ugh, I know, I know. Well, Adrian, it's almost like we're trying to piece together the legacy of our fathers in this oh episode of the podcast. God. I think we're doing this podcast because we just want to like talk about our families. <laughs> because I do want to say... <laughs> Adrian, <laughs> have you ever met me before? Oh my God, what have I agreed to do? I think that I get my, oh, I have to do the art thing from my mom, though. My dad was the one who built the business that he wanted to build. And maybe... In an ideal world, he probably would have been a musician, but I think he built a business that he feels very satisfied with and like uses skills that he's obviously amazing at because he's been running the business for for however old I am. But my mom is the one who was always in such pain and frustration about not being able to create her art. And I definitely know that my mom was the one who felt like she was giving up sacrifices. She was a woman in the 80s, like came from a lower middle, lower middle class family and was kind of like looking for it was just like, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. But my mom is a phenomenal artist and she never really went for it for reasons that I'm not totally sure. And that's a whole nother. But. I definitely have those moments more with my mom and of like, oh, this is what I want to be and this is what I have to do because my mom never got to. That's a big reason why I travel is because it's like Kara never got to get – she's never left the country. This is exactly what I was thinking about last night, Adrian, is mm-hmm. that – because I grew up – my mom was a professional artist, is a professional artist, but I don't think I have decided to be an artist in my life because of her. I think her taste – and approach has informed the way I approach my work and the creative values that I have. But I don't think being raised around art is what causes somebody to choose a creative path. I think what causes somebody to choose a creative path is I am going to do what he or she could not do. Ugh. Oh my God, I'm going to pass out. This is too much. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. I just wanted to talk about how bad Ruth's clothing was this episode. <laughs> and now I'm like, all of my life decisions have been made because of what my mother never could experience. Right. Okay. Last thing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything interesting to say about the fire? Um, I guess, I guess what's occurring to me in this moment is the fact that you noticed that during the funeral the family all works together to pull Mrs. Romano out of the casket. Everyone but Claire. Everyone but Claire. Because Claire's searching for the foot. Claire's busy looking for a foot. And when Claire sets the house across the street on fire, which the Croners have purchased to turn into a place that does cremation, I guess, that is her way of contributing. Definitely. To the family business. But also, like, maybe not... Because, like, if the house burned down, she, if found out, could go to jail for Larson. Well, Larson? Wait, what is Larson? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
No, that's beautiful. Larson, I, I think, would be... That's like when you steal a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is, what is Larson? Because you're... You're is conflating larceny and arson. <laughs> it's I sounded That's kind of amazing. Actually. I sounded very convincing and I'm gonna stand by it. You did sound convincing. Mm-hmm. You did. Um Who's to say she didn't steal a few things before? Well, we'll see what happens in episode four. Mm-hmm. Last thing I want to point out is Keith at mm-hmm. the end. I think very beautifully in illustrating what's appealing about David. Oh, this is a way to talk about the fire. Keith is talking to Claire. He says, you should be nicer to him. He's under a lot of pressure. What with the kroner buying that house across the street, that's what gives her the idea to set the fire. Right. But more than that, he says to Claire that what he loves about David is that David really sees him for who he is. I know. And in this episode where, and and series so far, where it has been so much about how Nate's the one who really gets people, Nate's the one who can really connect with people, we find out that David is capable of it too. It's just that Keith maybe is the only person that we've met in the show so far who he's comfortable letting that side of himself out yeah. with. I think Keith is a really good foil for David. Mm-hmm. He's the antithesis in so many ways. David is like a harbinger of death. Keith protects life. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Hashtag dating writers. What? Oh my God. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um. <laughs> I'm on fire, one might say. <gasps> like a like a house. Oh my God. This is just us kind of like verbally 69ing each other the whole time. (laughs) Have you ever heard of a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. Adrian, you know, a few moments ago we were talking about a podcast that you have. What is it called again? I have another podcast called Strangers Abroad. Mm. It is a narrative travel podcast. Would you recommend that the fine people tuning into this podcast listen to it? Oh, absolutely. As if you would are I. looking to mentally escape America, it is a good it's a good show that explores the inner and external world. Mm. Mm. Particularly good for quarantine. Yes. I also happen to have another podcast that has a very similar title to this one. It's called Family Ghosts. And we do in audio what the Fishers were doing with Mr. Romano's body (laughs) in this episode, which is to say, reconstruct legacies. It's nonfiction stories, unlike the Fishers. I hope you will listen to it as well. If you would like to send us an email, please do that. FFG at WALT.FM. We would love to talk to you about Six Feet Under in the way that we have just spent this time talking to each other. You are probably noticing things that we are missing. Let us know what those things are. We'll talk to you next week. 